My guest today is Liam Holt. Liam is an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Pharmacology at NYU. Liam has done some foundational work in elucidating the effects of crowding and compression on cellular behavior. Liam, it's great to have you on today. Thank you, Rishan. Yeah, so uh, let's get right to it. So, so my first question for you is, what's the average person's biggest misconception of what the cellular environment is like? Yeah, so one of the things that is kind of interesting and surprising about the cellular environment is you look in your textbook and typically you have a nice illustration of a cell and you can see that there's a nucleus and there's these organelles that we all learn about, the endoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria. Um, and in between, there is blank space. And perhaps some people might imagine that there's a fairly dilute environment. After all, when biochemists do experiments, they often take things and mix them basically in very dilute environments like watery environments. And so perhaps the, the cell might be the same inside. And the thing that our lab, one of the things that we're really focused on is to understand what that environment really is and how that conception is not correct. And just to put a thumb in it, a thumbtack in it, it's what we think is that it's incredibly crowded in there. Um, that it's not like this open, wishy-washy environment, but rather it's this incredibly jam-packed, crowded environment. Think about the difference between diving into a swimming pool or diving into a ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese. It's more like a ball pit. You know, it's a crazy chock-a-block with these large, what we call macromolecules, by which I mean just uh, proteins, RNA, um, large, large polymeric and colloidal structures. And so you're jumping into this thick soup of stuff um, and this incredibly high concentration is about as high as you can get before everything starts to grind to a halt. That is, it becomes too hard for things to move around um, and strange physical phenomena start to occur. So if you were thinking um, about actually kind of replicating these kind of crowding properties in vitro, is that something people do or have looked into? Right, so in vitro, in a test tube, when people are doing biochemical reactions, uh, people do, to some degree, try to mimic this crowded environment in some cases. And, and the way that they do that is they, uh, they add what, what are called crowding agents. So a crowding agent is uh, usually a large molecule that takes up, takes up space. And in so doing, it you know, the, the molecules of interest, let's say some enzyme that needs to find some substrate, something that it's going to phosphorylate, let's say, or some DNA that it's going to try and stitch together, um, those two molecules of interest will be pushed together perhaps by this crowding effect. And a really good example of this is for those you know, people listening who are experimentalists, if you've ever done a DNA ligation reaction, that is you add a couple of pieces of DNA and you want to get them to uh, fuse together using an enzyme called DNA ligase. There, this is something that has been crucial for molecular biology since it was invented. Uh, this is how we make new DNA. So. What you do is you can either go to the lab and you can mix your two pieces of DNA and your DNA ligase, and you can wait for 12 hours and the reaction will happen. Or you can spend a bunch of extra money on what they call the rapid DNA ligase kit from New England Biolabs. This is a company that sells these, uh, these enzymes and reagents to get that reaction to happen. And then you can get the same reaction to happen in five or 10 minutes. And the difference between these two reactions is simply that you're adding a crowding reagent in the latter case. And a crowding helps the reaction go much more quickly. And so that's just one example of how in a test tube, a reaction can be dramatically affected by the environment. And the only difference here being how crowded the environment is. And that's what makes us think that inside the cell, the control and the degree of crowding inside the cell is going to 
dictate the way the bio biology happens. Right. So what specific biological reactions and processes are maybe like most dramatically affected by crowding? So the two things that we think about the most are how do molecules move and how do molecules assemble? And the assembly, this is perhaps the slightly less intuitive one. So in the case of DNA ligation, the ligase and the DNA coming together, that molecular interaction is favored by crowding. So why is that? It doesn't seem immediately obvious. Um, and there are several sort of subtle reasons why it might be, but a, a general kind of idea is that when you want to have two molecules come together and bind, if they have any propensity to bind, that's usually because they, they have some stickiness that they, they have a, a binding affinity. But when they come together, two molecules coming together to form a single complex, that is unfavorable in terms of entropy. Um, entropy being the degree of disorder in the system. And entropy is really one of the slightly less intuitive things that um, the layperson may not be as aware of. You know, it's, everyone knows that things stick together, but perhaps it's a little bit less widely appreciated that um, entropy, this degree of disorder in the universe, is one of the most powerful driving forces that causes reactions to happen or not happen. So the two molecules coming together decreases entropy and decreasing entropy is something that is unfavorable. That, that's not something that happens easily. So there's a, a, um, for a reaction to happen, the binding energy has to be greater than the um, unfavorable change in entropy. Now, when you have a crowder in a system, you can start to think about entropy, not only of the two things that are binding to one another, but of those two things and also the crowder. So if you have a massive amount of crowder around and the this environment is really, there's not a, that much space to move around. Um, when you have the two reactants, the DNA and the DNA ligase come together, they take up less space. And that gives more room for the crowder to, to jiggle. And having more room and more places that you can be and more degrees of freedom, is a, that increases the entropy. And so even though the entropy of the DNA and the DNA ligase is going down, this is offset by an increase in entropy of the crowder. And so this crowding then favors the binding reaction because it, it helps with the entropic component of the reaction. So that's assembly. And that same principle of um, crowding driving molecular assembly through these entropic effects is generalizable and it can cause all kinds of things to, to assemble. Um, then the second thing, the other side of the coin, is the ability of molecules to move around. So the cell is also, in, inside the cell, it's at a level of crowding approaching uh, what we call jamming transitions or glass transitions, where the molecules become so jam-packed that it, it starts to approach what could be sort of intuited something like a traffic jam, where you get these local log jams and molecules just grind to a halt. And if something, um, some process needs to occur where, again, two molecules have to diffuse through the environment and meet one another, if there's a huge log jam in the way, then they just can't get to one another. So this effective viscosity, this uh, difficulty in moving around in the environment is, is also controlled by crowding. So there's this sweet spot where um, if you don't have enough crowding, then reactions might not go quickly enough because you don't you have this problem with entropy. But if you have too much crowding, then everything comes to this log jam and molecules can't get to each other anymore. And so again, the reaction rates go down. So what we predict is that any reaction in a cell is going to have some optimal level of crowding. An important point there is that that optimum might not be the same for every reaction. It's going to depend on the size of the molecules that are involved in the reaction. And it's going to depend on how strongly they tend to interact 
in general. It might be that if molecules are extremely um, strongly interacting, they, they might not need this entropic component. So do we, do we see like spatial variation in the cell in terms of crowding, like some areas are more crowded than other areas? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one would predict that if you are close to these glass transitions, that uh, local fluctuations would be amplified potentially, and you would get little bits of the cell that would um, potentially become highly viscous. And nearby, you might find another compartment in the cell. Even in the same, you know, within the cytoplasm, you could have different, very different diffusive environments just by chance. Now, beyond that, within different cellular compartments, you have potentially very different crowding, and we don't really understand that yet, but we, we've started to look at the difference between the cytoplasm and the nucleus, for example. And in the nucleus, you have very different molecules present than in the cytoplasm, and how the physical properties of that environment are controlled, um, are, that's likely to be different. Um, um, that's something we're kind of interested in, in exploring. Right. So in terms of actually um, kind of measuring this crowding, how, what, what, what tools do you use to, to do that? And how do you even kind of probe these properties? So the main tool that we've been using to measure crowding or the physical properties inside the cell is a, it's a technique that's um, called microreology. Um, rheology is the study of viscoelastic materials. So viscoelastic materials are things that viscous means that you push on something or you, you know, drag an object through the material and it will have some drag. Um, but if you stop, then there'll be no recoil. So for example, honey is mostly a viscous material. Um, and an elastic material is something that if you, it, it has memory. So if you push on it, then it will, and you stop pushing on it, then it'll push back. And you know, this is sort of intuitive, like an elastic band. Um, Viscoelastic materials have both properties and they, depending on how you uh, interact with them, the different properties will dominate. So a really fun example of this is if you take cornstarch and mix it at very high concentration into water, I think it's about two parts cornstarch to one part water, then you get what people in America call oobleck. I think they call it oobleck, which is a good name. And um, try it. So you may have tried it already. If you haven't, then, then it's easy to try this out. And if you take this mixture and you uh, have it in a bowl and you slowly press your finger onto it, it just feels like a liquid. Your finger just sinks in, no problem. But if you punch it really hard with your fingers, if you give it a good stab, then it feels like a solid. And that's a viscoelastic material. When, it, when you're probing it quickly, then the elastic component dominates. And if you're probing it slowly, then the viscous component dominates. Anyway, that's a description of you know this complex environment inside the cell and how magical, uh, apparently magical properties can arise when you have these very crowded environments. Um, okay, so how do we, so we, we can't get our finger and poke inside the cell because our fingers are too big and cells are too small. And so, there are ways of poking the cell. Um, so that's one thing that can be done. You can take a very small um, probe, uh, and this is typically an, what's called an, an atomic force microscope. And you can you can poke the thing as, as we were poking oobleck with our finger. But that's a challenging technique and requires some very specialized um, equipment. What we've mostly been doing instead is, a, is what's called microreology, which is a passive way of looking at a system, at looking at the material and trying to infer its properties. So let's go to another analogy. So what you do is you put in some kind of tracer particle, um, by which I mean a particle that you can see easily. And in this case, we use fluorescence. So we can see the light emitted from a fluorescent molecule. And we use a molecule that's um, it's a nanoparticle, which means that it's uh, the, the particles we use are typically 40 nanometers in diameter. Um, and what we do is we watch the motion of these nanoparticles as they just diffuse in the cell. They just randomly move around. And let's zoom out now to an analogy. Let's imagine that you uh, you couldn't really see the environment because it was nighttime. 
but you could see a flashlight and you put the flashlight on your trusted best friend, your dog, and let it run around. And you didn't know if it was in the field or if it was in the forest. Well, if the dog is running in long straight lines and easily moving around quickly and not changing direction very often, you'd see the flashlight and it would trace a straight line. And occasionally it might change direction just because the dog, you know, it's excitable and it likes to explore the edge of the field. Um, but then compare that to what it looks like when the dog is running around in the forest, dog slows down because it has all these obstacles and it's changing direction all the time as it like avoids trees. And if you just, all you can see is a flashlight, then you see this tortuous path of the, of the light moving through the forest. And uh, that's pretty much what we're doing. We are putting these nanoparticles into cells and we're watching their motion. And from the way that they move, there's this entire field of physics that is dedicated to interpreting the, the tracks, the, um, the trajectories of these nanoparticles and inferring what that means in terms of the material environment. And so we do this, and from that we can infer what that means in terms of crowding in the cell. Right, that's very interesting. Um, so do you have a sense of how these nanoparticles sort of get in the way of natural biological processes? I guess the question being, we're putting nanoparticles in the cell, how do we know that we're not changing the cell or perturbing the cell? Right, right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we can do simple things. So we can ask when we look at a cell without nanoparticles and compare it to one that has them, do the cells behave differently? Do they grow at a different rate, for example? So, you know, cellular division rate and growth rate, um, anything that's toxic to the cell will usually, you can very sensitively um, detect toxicity just because cells will slow down in their growth rate. And the particles that we use, they don't make any difference whatsoever to the cell's growth rate. Um, so we don't think that it's really interfering with at least, broad, at least in broad strokes, we don't think it's interfering with biology. Um, so. We could do a whole bunch of detailed things, looking at stress pathways, things like that. And it seems like it, we're, we're okay. Of course, we can't completely rule it out. Um, right. Right. So um, using these nanoparticles, like, do you have a sense of kind of what are the uh, kind of major, maybe quote unquote, players that are involved in crowding? Is it like, is it due to proteins? Is it due to other macromolecular structures? Where's this crowding emanating from? Yeah, so this is a... An interesting question, um, is there something in the cell that is taking up most of the space? And um, one point to make before I get to that is that it depends on how big you are. So one thing that's in interesting about the cell is it's, it's a very complicated environment. And what may feel crowded to a small molecule um, or a smaller protein um, might be quite different for something that's larger, that, that's more on the, the size of, say, uh, RNA polymerase or a multi-protein complex like the proteasome. So let me again give an analogy. So that's like, you know, if you're worried about traffic in New York City, uh, where I live, uh, you don't want to be in a taxi at rush hour. You want to be on a bicycle because a taxi really feels the crowding on you know, Park Avenue and it can't move at all. But a bicycle doesn't really care. It just like, moves between the gaps. And um, so this is called length scale, right? The, the length scale of a bicycle, New York is not too crowded. It's still pretty crowded, but, it's, but at the length scale of a car, New York City is jammed, and you know this is this is a problem. Although it's gotten better since the pandemic, um, as far as that goes. Um, so it's one sort of like weird consequence of this recent times. Um, so in the cell, so the particles that we're using are about forty nanometers in diameter. I mentioned that before, and that's about the size of these multi-subunit complexes, um, things like the proteasome. RNA polymerase, et cetera. And it's a very interesting size of thing because a lot of regulation is happening involving these large complexes. Now for those complexes, it turns out that in the cytoplasm, what we discovered um, is that the crowding is dominated 
by ribosomes. And perhaps, well, I don't know if we discovered that, but that's what we found to be really important. Um, and perhaps it should have been more obvious to us when we were trying to search for how the cell was regulating its crowding, because there's a, a long history of people quantifying how many ribosomes are in a cell, and, it, and it's an incredibly high density. So it turns out that typically about half of the, what we call excluded volume of the cytoplasm is ribosomes, which means that half of the stuff that isn't soluble water and ions in the cytoplasm is, is ribosomes. If you account for how much of the cytoplasm is excluded volume, like just what's the total amount of stuff, about almost half of the cytoplasm is taken up with micromolecules, and about half of that is ribosomes. Um, so that's really, really important for the behavior of, of, of multi-subunit complexes. For smaller proteins, um, you know, things like individual enzymes, uh, they're like bicycles. They don't feel the ribosomes as much. Right. Um, it's really interesting. So, you know, along the lines of uh, crowding, I also wanted to delve into um, the notion of like cellular size as another kind of important physical property. So, could you maybe get into first off, why is cell size important for uh, function? Yeah. So, cell size. There are many answers to that question, I suppose. Um, one thing that is important is that uh, you have a defined amount of DNA in your nucleus that produces the RNA that then has to produce all of the stuff that needs to fill the cytoplasm. And there's a certain point at which if cells become too big, the DNA can't produce material rapidly enough to fill that cytoplasm. And so there's a dilution effect. Things in the cytoplasm start to become too dilute and then biochemical reactions start to become inefficient and fail. Um, that's one example of where size control is important. Interesting. So can you somehow scale the nucleic acid synthesis with the cell size? Like do the two things together to see how those would affect each other? This is one of the things that has been observed for you know decades since people started to study cell size. They've noticed that if you change the number of copies of the genome, then that scales pretty perfectly with the size of the cell. So if you take a you know, a simple cell like a yeast cell, and you look at a haploid, and then you mate it to a diploid, then it will be twice as big. And this is pretty universal behavior. And maybe, you know, that's something that is just to control how easy the concentration of molecules in the cell. Now, how cell size is controlled remains one of the big mysteries and open questions of biology. Um, there are some, you know, great models out there, and there are some very nice work that has determined some of the mechanisms. Um, but there's no one answer, and it's probably a combination of a bunch of control mechanisms coupled with a bunch of biophysical, intrinsic biophysical feedback mechanisms, and crowding could be part of that, um, that will, in a very general way, lead to some kind of size control. Um, so it's a complex issue, and it also might not, it's going to be different between bacteria and eukaryotic cells, and so getting a universal model of size control right. is tough. Right. So if you focus on maybe like a specific cell type, um, do we have a sense of like what the variation in cell size is? Is it pretty tight or is there a lot of variation? In that? If we focus on, let's say, the yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae or Saccharomyces pombe, the two, you know, workhorse genetic systems where cell size has been studied a, a huge amount, um, the size is pretty, the distribution of sizes is pretty tight. Uh, it doesn't vary much. And actually, that's one thing that's kind of curious is that people have discovered cell size mutants that are smaller or bigger than the normal cell. But the variance in size, the you know, scatter around the, the mean size doesn't go crazy. So they, they've gotten, they divide when they're too small or they divide when they're too big, but they still manage to maintain a fairly homogeneous cell size. Interesting. 
So switching gears a bit, I'm going to toss you a series of just random slash fun questions unrelated to your primary research, if that sounds good now. So um, first question was about the modular evolution hypothesis. So first off, what is it? And secondly, what's your best take um, on why this may be true? Hmm. The modular evolution hypothesis. Well, there's this idea, I suppose, I'm not sure if I know exactly what you're talking about, but one way of putting that would be that um, if you look at proteins, uh, you can find modules that, that is domains uh, of a particular fold that uh, perform a particular function. And they tend to be found in many proteins and they can move around by gene duplication and uh, fusion of genes together to create different architectures of protein. And by stitching together different modules, you can generate novel function uh, more easily. So I suppose an analogy would be that if you have the wheel as a module, you can stick the wheel on lots of different things and it will move um, smoothly across the surface. Um, in protein evolution, like my favorite example of, of this is it stems from the work of Nicole King and Wendell Lim um, back when the uh, sequencing of coanoflagellates uh, happened. So there's this really cool, uh, this is Nicole King's work, where she's tried to figure out how we went from being unicellular organisms to being multicellular animals. And it turns out that the one way you do this is you look at the tree of life and you have all of the animals, and then you look at the thing that isn't a multicellular animal, but is most closely related to the multicellular animals. And this uh, turns out to be a group of um, aquatic organisms called coanoflagellates. And these are little cells that swim around with a flagellum, it's a little propeller, and they have a collar, which is an actin-rich structure, which is almost like a, a mouth for them. And But it turns out that in some conditions, and often this has to do with interaction with bacteria, um, they will convert from being single cells and they will divide and stick together and form little structures. Um, and these little structures start to, that, that process starts to look a bit like embryogenesis. So then what's some of the simplest animals are sponges, like, um, you know, you find in coral reefs and so forth. And if you look at the tube inside a sponge, and the sort of gut of a sponge, and look at the cells there, they look exactly like uh, coanoflagellates. They're called coanocytes for that reason. Okay, so this is sort of like a very simple observation that's been made since uh, it was Savile Kent in the late 19th century. And um, it's led to this idea that there's a link between coanoflagellates and uh, and the earliest animals, the simplest animals. And so sure enough, the genomes were sequenced and this all fits. And so the question was, well, what happened to the modules inside of the genome when you went from the next most diverged uh, organism from coanoflagellates and then the coanoflagellates arose and then you went to animals. And what happened there was that you went from having um, just serine-threonine kinases, so these are enzymes that put phosphate on serine and threonine, and this is a way that cells process information. That's the way that they compute information. Um, and those serine-threonine kinases occasionally will also put a phosphate on tyrosine, and so you get tyrosine phosphorylation. But then when you get the kind of flagellates, and then you even more so when you get animals, there's a, a new kind of kinase showed up called the tyrosine kinase, which was specialized for phosphorylating ty tyrosine. And you can think about this new kind of kinase as a new module. And if you look at all of the signaling that happens between the cells of multicellular animals, uh, there's a ton of tyrosine kinases. They've just exploded at the cell surface and, and intracellular communication and the process of development. So like how do you get from a single cell to form tissues and to form the structure of the organism? That's all like heavily instructed by tyrosine kinases. So suddenly this tyrosine phosphorylation became crazy. And the other thing that 
massively expanded, like the number of domains that just appeared and expanded at that time are called SH2 domains. So these are proteins, these are protein domains that bind to phosphatyrosine. So the idea became that you needed to have the simultaneous expansion of tyrosine kinases and SH2 domains to have a new type of uh, information really available, which is the phosphatyrosine, and a new way of reading that information, which is the SH2 domain that binds to that phosphatyrosine. And suddenly you have the ability of forming all of these new network connections where you're bringing together multiple tyrosine kinases with SH2 domains and other signaling molecules. And um, so, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a very striking example of modular evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, I want to ask, so how has growing up in a small village in England shaped your perspective of New York City? <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm from a small village in England. They, if, you, if you guys have ever seen The Princess Bride, um, the amazing Rob Reiner movie <laughs> with Andre the Giant, then you will have seen my village because it was filmed there. Wow. That's his main claim to fame. But it's a small village, 400 people in the middle of Derbyshire in, um, in England. And quite parochial and they're very bucolic, so it's like very pretty and very easy to be out in nature. Um, I guess being in New York, when I was when I was growing up in a small village, all I wanted to do was to be in a more exciting, more you know, uh, engaging and vibrant place. And now I'm in New York. I really miss being in a small, quiet village <laughs> in front of the fire and my hot tea. Um, so I don't know if that's any kind of answer. I think that as as you move through life, you start to appreciate uh, the balance between things. So right, right. Um, yeah. Nice. So you're also the co-director and uh, co-founder of Science Sketches, this platform where scientists across the globe contribute these short, accessible videos and drawings about scientific ideas and concepts. So I wanted to ask you, what do people underrate the most about good scientific drawings or videos and illustrations? Yeah, okay. So I'll give you a little description of Science Sketches and then maybe some interesting um, misconceptions or underrated things. So, you know, Science Sketches, um, it's a project to try to do two things. First of all, we want to explain science. So we're providing these stepping stones from people's general vocabulary to the specialized language of science. So, um, and the way that we do this is through two minute videos. Um, two minutes is long enough to explain a concept, but it's not so long that people get bored and people get bored really quickly. So two minutes is good. Um, but the second thing is that there's this very strong desire in the scientific community to contribute to these kind of outreach projects. And it's not, uh, not always obvious how you can do that. Um, so we kind of wanted to address these two needs in a synergistic way. So what we aim to do, what we are doing, is crowdsourcing the production of these videos. So it's not that we're producing these sketch videos. Um, there are lots of great science communication organizations that produce sketch videos with very high production value. And they're fantastic. The, there are two issues with them, though. One is that they are inherently bandwidth limited, right? That you might have a team of 10 people in an extremely large science communication project, and you wouldn't be able to make that many videos. Uh, I think we need thousands of these kind of videos to achieve what we want to achieve, which is to, you know, every time you, I, you can imagine a place in the future where science journalists can just write their New York Times article and they can hotlink every scientific concept that they put in there such that you know they, anyone who's unfamiliar can quickly watch a two-minute video and bring themselves up to speed. And that's what we call just-in-time learning. So to be able to have that really be the kind of resource we want it to be, like a video Wikipedia of science, we probably need thousands of videos. And that's just really hard for any small organization to do. But if you crowdsource it, you can totally do it. So that addresses the bandwidth issue. And um, it also provides you know, unlimited opportunities for people to contribute. Um, so getting to the surprising thing and the misconception. So one misconception people have about making these videos is that it's hard and I need to be a fantastic artist to do this. 
neither of which are true. So one of the main things we've done over the past few years is to come up with a recipe, a really simple way that anyone can make these videos. It just takes maybe four or five hours and all you need is a cell phone. And when it comes to people not being able to draw in their own words, that's actually not a problem at all. So one of the things about sketch video or drawing things, uh, honestly, this is something that I learned in graduate school in UCSF where I went to graduate school in San Francisco. We had a journal club that was mandatory for everyone in the program. And it wasn't required, but it was heavily frowned upon to use any kind of slides. In fact, what we used was an overhead projector and some transparencies, and we would hand draw everything. And what that does is it forces you to abstract the information from whatever you're trying to present into something that is easily understandable to anyone. Because if you can draw it, you can usually understand it. Mm. This is very different than uh, showing an image of a fly brain mm. or you know a microsco microscope image. Because you or I, Ishan, we can look at those things and with less training, if it's something that we're familiar with in our fields, we can quickly interpret that and we can abstract the, the information and understand it. But someone who's not familiar with that kind, of, those kind of data, they, they get confused very easily and they don't know what they're supposed to be looking at and they don't know what the green is and the red is and the blue is. And so, but if you draw it with a pen, then it makes sense. And it turns out that people who are too good at art, they start to draw things that are uh, too complex and they're not mm -hmm. actually abstracted. Whereas a child drawing a human, like maybe you know, it's enough to know that it's a human to have a round circle head and two stick legs and two stick arms. You can see that's a human and not a dog because it's standing on two legs. You know, it's all you need to know. Right. And uh, so this abstraction thing is is super important. And being bad at art can actually help you. <laughs> more clear. So I highly encourage people to go to the website www.sciencesketches.org and uh, make a video to explain science to the world. That's awesome. You also have this Inspire Science initiative. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, Inspire Science, it's been going on for many years. Um, it initially started with a more whimsical name. It was called Let's Have an Awesome Time Doing Science. Uh, first one happened, again, just at the end of my grad school period when I was at UCSF. And then I continued at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Stanford picked it up and they did a few events there. And then we've revamped it and reinitialized it here at, at New York, in New York University. And the name is now Inspire Science, because let's have an awesome time doing science with too much of a mouthful, I guess. Uh, and you can look it up. It's Inspire Sci, which is uh, inspire and then sci.org. Um, and the idea is to think about what it, what it means to do science uh, as a community, as a human, um, in the context of society. Uh, it's very broad reaching in its remit. And, but the point is that you know, we're not robots, and science isn't objective and we don't work in a vacuum. So let's think about all of those broader contextual elements of science. Let's celebrate them, let's acknowledge the challenges that we all face, which can be extreme, and <clears throat> think about how we can support each other. Um, so that's that's the goal of Inspire Science, uh, and it was of let's have an awesome time doing science as well. And we continue to do that. The um, symposia happen once a year now, and they're organized by graduate students and postdocs. Um, and yeah, we have a different theme each year. And so uh, anyone's welcome to join and anyone's welcome to take the idea and run with it. Like I said, you know, Stanford picked up the Let's Have an Awesome Time doing Science idea and they organized their own symposia. If other people want to organize their own Inspire Science symposia or resurrect the old title, that's fine as well. Uh, I just think it's great that uh, more and more people have these kind of conversations and create safe spaces within which to, uh, you know, create this supportive and more holistic environment within which we can we can thrive. So to end on the podcast, um, I'm going to ask you a few high-level questions about how you approach and think about scientific problems. So you've done a lot of work in evolution and biology. How does that complement your primary research? Well, 
was it Dujensky that said that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution? It's kind of essential, I think, as a molecular biologist and um, to, to consider things in the light of evolution. Um, that's how you, I, I always want to try and synthesize as much as possible. So instead of getting really into the detailed nuances of a particular process in a particular cell in a particular condition, I'd rather zoom out and try and take a you know, more general view. And there are lots of different ways you can zoom out, but one of them is to compare between organisms, try and find similarities and differences between the way that uh, a problem is solved in different organisms. And, and now you're studying evolution all of a sudden. So I think it's just a powerful lens to try and understand principles, general principles. So we kind of touched on this earlier, um, but what role does abstraction play in making um, scientific insights for you? For instance, thinking about biological processes as circuits or environmental conditions as sensors. I think abstraction is really useful. It's also dangerous. Um, so you know the systems biology field that um, people, I guess, defined it as such at the turn of the uh, the millennium. People started talking about systems biology a lot, and it was uh, there were quite a few people bringing concepts from electronic circuits and circuit design into biology and lots of mathematical modeling and so forth. And I think it was useful and uh, it gave people a new way of understanding perhaps things that were confusing before and was successful in some cases. Um, abstraction is just a, a way that we can, with our human brains, try and make predictions, right? We, we can't look at every molecule in the cell and understand what's going to happen next, but we can try and um, come up with a model. Uh, every model is an abstraction. And from that model, if it's a useful model, it has to be able to make useful predictions. And so you have to abstract. And the degree to which you can fully understand a system depends on how far you've abstracted it. So in physics, um, you know, if you've understood a system analytically, it means you have a, an equation that describes exactly what's going to happen with any set of parameters. And to be able to do that, you have to abstract pretty far because you can only solve systems analytically if they're pretty simple. And therefore, what you have done by doing that is you've found some level of understanding of biology that humans can completely understand. Um, then there are intermediate ranges where you, know, you have to use computers to be able to crunch numbers because we can't solve the equations ourselves completely. And so we have to explore through parameter space. Um, but still, we can get useful insights and we can say, OK, well, so it seems like things are going to work in this general range of parameters and they're not going to work over here. Um, but we can't know exactly where the entire you know, field is or the entire territory, what it all looks like. We can just explore parts of it. And then you get to real biology where it's more complicated than that even. And um, you can try and add every single possible nuance and detail. But then we would have very little chance of understanding it at all. So you find your place in that spectrum of abstraction that's useful. And, um, and you go with it. The danger, I suppose, is that you can throw away the baby with the bathwater, as it were, and you can um, start to get a little bit too, too attached to your abstractions. And as the, the real world stops conforming to them, then you sort of start to become a little bit too entrenched and ignore the useful new directions. So I, I'm kind of waffling a little bit, but I think that the really key thing is that everything we do in science is creating models. And they are all, I can't remember who said this, but this, the quote goes, all models are wrong and some are useful. And what that means is that we should celebrate the fact that we're able to make a model and it does anything useful at all. That means you're in the some are useful range, but you should definitely appreciate that your model is wrong and your goal should be to prove the model. That doesn't mean to make sure, so in the true word of, of prove, which means to test. So what you do is you throw experiments at your model until it fails. And by the model failing, you learn what you don't know. 
and then you try and understand what that gap in knowledge is. So yeah, that's abstraction for me. So final question I wanted to ask you was, you know, a big theme in your work is developing new tools, whether it be the nanoparticles we were talking about earlier, or you've also done some work with uh, microfluidic devices to um, study effects of pressure on cellular properties. So why is it important to develop new tools? And, um, you know, do you think the field as a whole should kind of be doing more of it? Developing new tools is fun and opens up new scientific insights and directions. Um, if you can find a way, a, a technology, a new technique that will allow you to ask a question that couldn't be asked before, then that opens up a lot of mileage for you. Um, then there's this problem of determining at what point do you stop optimizing the technology and start uh, asking questions with it? Uh, and that's, that's a tricky balance. Um, we tend to try and move to the biology pretty quickly. And it, it's, it's often frustrating because we know that we can make the technology better and uh, we wish we had more time and resources to put into it. But at the end of the day, we're not in an engineering department and we're not in an engineering school. I'm in a medical center. Our job is to study biology. You know, that's my background and training and that's what I find most exciting. So, um, so we move into that area quickly. There's no right or wrong. Um, technology development, I think is, it's going to happen at the, the pace that, that there's a demand for it. I think it's almost like a capitalist thing. If there's a huge gap and people can see that there's a technological need that could be filled, then someone's going to be motivated to do it. And so if it's not you, it's going to be someone else. Communicating the need for a technology is perhaps something that uh, could be facilitated. So, you know, that's why it's good to have, uh, try and open the lines of communication between engineering types and biology types. And I think that we're doing a better and better job of that. So, so yeah, I think we've had a, a fun time um, doing a bit of technology development and then then trying to leverage it. In terms of like the microfluidics technologies and things like that, I mean, that, that hasn't been me. That's been, um, I, I had a, a postdoc um, who's now got his own lab in Toulouse, France, Morgan de la Rue. And he's a physicist and he's a uh, you know, person with amazing microfluidics engineering skills. And he drove all of that stuff and continues to do that. And in his institute in Toulouse, they have fantastic micro and nanofabrication facilities uh, far better than anything we could ever hope to do. And so we continue to talk to Morgan and collaborate with him, and he's brilliant. And so, you know, that that's the ideal. Liam, thanks a lot. Uh, we had a really great conversation with you. All right. Thanks, Sashan.